Before I get started, just a reminder that this is my last scheduled show. Why, you ask? Well, I always told myself I would stop at episode 234. That's it. No more. I don't want to get to 235. Just kidding. No, it seems that, well, this is the right time. Um, Although I'll say that I might do new shows in the future, but it's whenever I get one written that I like, so it might never happen. I'll have more about my future at the end of today's show. So let's get on with it. These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Coffee with Jeff, the podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and force that knowledge on you, the podcast subscriber. This is episode 234. Back in my day, there were machines that you could put coins into and get products back like chips, pop, candy, sandwiches, and more. There were even coin-operated machines that could mold little plastic into things like little dinosaurs. There were devices created way back in the 1960s. And for just a couple of quarters, you could watch a toy be created right before your eyes. It was an invention created by a man who wanted nothing more than a replacement for a Christmas decoration. On this show, I have the story of Moldorama, as well as vending machines and pinball. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Not much before the pandemic began, I, along with my wife and daughter, visited a couple of great places in Chicago, the Field Museum of Natural History and the Shedd Aquarium. Both are wonderful places on the north shore of Lake Michigan. If you ever visit the Windy City, I highly recommend both. While at the Field Museum, I saw something that caught my interest. It was a strange contraption that I couldn't help but shoot a little video of it in action. And as it operated, a wonderful melting plastic smell filled the area. And in the end, a young child had a little souvenir, a plastic dinosaur. This machine was, of course, the Moldorama. The large mechanical device is about the size of a love seat, or about as tall and double the width of an old jukebox. It has a plastic bubble on top that lets you see all the action as it happens. And you know, it doesn't appear to be an object of this day and age. It looks like it was, I don't know, made in the 1960s. And that's because, well, it was made in the 1960s. And it hasn't changed except for the price, of course. These things belong in a museum. Now, I know I saw it in a museum, but not as a historical artifact behind glass or velvet rope with a sign in front explaining what humans used it for. No, these are still in use, and you can find them not just at the Field Museum, but dozens of museums and zoos, and they're all still in operation. And there are collectors who travel all over the country trying to get every waxy plastic model the Moldorama creates. Anyway, I looked at this machine and thought, where did these come from, and why are they still in operation? And since they are in operation, why haven't they been updated like jukeboxes or soda pop vending machines? I mean, nowadays we have 3D printing, right? 
But these are not that. They are injection molding. Who fills these with the plastic to keep them going and repairs them when bits fail? Well, apparently it all started back in 1937, a short time before Christmas. A figure from a nativity scene the Miller family from Quincy, Illinois displayed every year had broke. The decoration was important to the family, so J.H. Tyke Miller wanted a replacement. The problem was a replacement wasn't available by itself. To get another one, you had to purchase the whole set. And Tyke didn't want a whole set. He just wanted that one piece that was broken. So with the help of his wife, they sculpted and painted a new figure out of plaster. And as they did, they realized there was a market for such things. So soon, Tyke owned his own company selling nativity figures and other small statues at a local shop. The J.H. Miller Company really took off during World War II when imports from Germany, where most nativity scenes came from, were not available. The company eventually had a staff of 110 producing 18,000 figures made from plaster of Paris each day. But during the war, there was a need to preserve scarce natural resources, so there was an effort to use more synthetic alternatives. One of these gets its name from the term pliable and easily shaped. We know it as plastic. And even though the first synthetic polymers were invented in 1869 as a substitute for ivory, it was in 1950 where plastic really took off. Tyke Miller was there. He started using injection molding to make his little figures. Injection molding is where polyethylene pellets get heated to 225 degrees, becoming a liquid. The liquid is then injected into a two-piece mold. A blast of high-pressure air leaves the sculpture hollow, and antifreeze is pumped inside to cool and harden the figure. Once it's drained, the mold comes apart and a new little sculpture is created, and it all takes less than one minute. With the injection molding, Miller was able to create all types of figures. Dinosaurs, jungle animals, and even aliens. Unfortunately, Tyke Miller's company went bankrupt in the late 1950s. I'm not sure why, but at the same time, he was inventing a new machine, an injection molding vending machine. He began working with Chicago's Automatic Retailers of America, the ARA, and Miller licensed the technology to them, and they called it the Moldorama. The bubble top vending machines appeared at the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. Placed around the fair, one could produce a model of the Space Needle. Each one went for the low price of 50 cents, which is equal to about four and a half dollars today. So they weren't all that cheap. An article in the Los Angeles Times in October of 62 said, the director of marketing and merchandising for the firm said a test machine was set up at the Seattle's World Fair turned out replicas of the Space Needle. At 50 cents apiece, sales were great, he said. But when we cut the price to 25 cents as a test, sales tripled. Another article from November of that same year said, During the next year, local residents are expected to make about 10,500 products on the machine, according to Moldorama estimates. The company feels that during that same period, 32 million items will be made on the machines located in 15 to 20 other test cities. Within a decade, says manufacturer, America will purchase a large percentage of their daily non-food needs from these machines that spring up from these pioneering units.
The company imagined on-demand products like dishes, vases, ashtrays, pocket combs, and even jewelry available at any time with a push of a button. The ARA had grand ambitions for the machines. They made a big impression at the 1964 New York World's Fair, and in 1966 the machines were installed at Chicago's Brookfield Zoo. Sinclair Oil Corporation began using the bubble top machine so customers could produce a plastic figure of their mascot, the green brontosaurus named Dino. Disney worked with Pepsi and offered figures like Mickey Mouse, Goofy, Donald Duck, Pluto, and other Disney characters. All across the country, you could get things like dolphins, alligators, a NASA space lab, Project Mercury space capsules, and presidential busts. Even at the Montreal World's Fair Expo in 1967, one could get a Royal Canadian mounted police figure, an Eiffel Tower, or the logo of the fair on a maple leaf. These machines were everywhere, not just museums, zoos, and amusement parks, but also department stores like Sears, rest stops on international highways, and some even in the corner drugstore. By 1969, there was about 200 Moldorama machines around the country. But the Moldorama business never took off the way the company hoped, and the ARA decided to get out of the plastic figurine business. One reason might have been that each machine cost about $36,000, which is over $27,000 in today's money. And when you add in the expense to maintain them, parts often had to be replaced, and constantly stocking them with plastic pellets, it just wasn't worth the money. Many of the Chicago machines were purchased by an independent operator named Bill Jones, who started Moldorama, Inc. He bought a dozen or so of the machines, ten in the Brookfield Zoo and two in the Museum of Science and Industry. Over the years, he would buy more as they became available. More machines were bought by Eldon Irwin, who placed them throughout Michigan and Ohio. In the 1980s, Irwin bought out another Florida vendor called Moldomatic. He kept the name, and both Moldorama and Moldomatic still operate these machines today. Moldorama Inc. has about 60 machines in popular windy city spots like Brookfield Zoo, the Field Museum, the Lincoln Park Zoo, the Museum of Science and Industry, and the Willis Tower. Moldomatic has about 70 machines in places like Bush Gardens, Zoo Miami, the Central Florida Zoo, Gatorland, the Lowry Park Zoo, the Mott Aquarium, and the famous Seaquarium. And as it says in an article on mental floss that I actually used for much of this information, while the price of the modern figure has gone up to an average of $2, it's still cheaper than a stuffed animal. But you know, as I researched this, I began to think of vending machines in general. What was the first vending machine, and who thought selling cigarettes from a vending machine was a good idea? First of all, where does the word vending come from? Well, I don't want to sound like an 8th grade term paper, but according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the word vend means to sell explicitly as a hawker or peddler. So a vending machine is a device to hawk or peddle items mechanically. But you know, machines such as this might have existed more than 2,000 years ago. The Greeks might have had their own vending machine. 
The Smithsonian website tells me that in 1990, Greek divers went through an ancient shipwreck recovering dozens of bronze fragments that turned out to be parts of a 2,000-year-old mechanical calendar. Recent research has discovered that this was part of a coin-operated machine that involved 17 gear wheels held together by a complex pin-and-slot system. Apparently, in the first century AD, there were temples that had a device that, when a coin was inserted into a slot at the top of a box, the coin would hit a metal lever, like a balance beam. The other end of the beam was attached to a string, and as the lever went up from the weight of the coin on the other side, it opened a plug and dispensed a bit of holy water. Now, as far as we know, there wasn't much in the way of vending machines for a long, long time after. Not until at least 1615. In England, there were these little boxes about four and a half inches wide and tall and about nine and a half inches deep. It had a coin slot at the top. One would drop in a half penny, which is slightly bigger than a U.S. quarter, and that would open the lid, allowing the customers to grab a pinch of snuff or a little tobacco for a pipe. And it was on the honor system for the purchaser, not only for them to take just a pinch, but also to close the lid for the next customer. The first modern style vending machines were in London in the early 1880s. Invented by a man named Percival Everett, it was a cast iron machine that was about 18 inches long, 12 inches high, and 14 inches wide. The top was sloped up so the customer could use it to write. You see, this machine was used to sell postcards and stationery. And one of the most advanced features of this machine was that, when stock ran out, a spring closed the coin slot. The first one was put up in the center of London, and it was so heavy it took 20 men to move it. But it was quite a success, and soon there were more than 100 of these installed around the city. But one problem he had was people trying to use slugs and other items instead of the proper coins. He said, Articles such as paper, orange peel, and other rubbish have been maliciously placed in the slit provided for the admission of the coin. And that, in consequence, the channel became blocked. To solve the problem, he began to install his machines where they could be under the watchful eye of people like railroad employees. English publisher and bookshop owner Richard Carlyle invented a vending machine for selling books around the same time. He was looking for a way to sell provocative books, such as Payne's Age of Reason, without having to face the punishment for selling blasphemous material. And shortly after, of course, there were coin changers to make sure the customer had the correct coins to make their purchase. The first of these was called the Bijou Coin Changer, invented around 1900 by George Salter and his company in England. Soon there was an explosion of vending machines in England, Switzerland, France, Germany, and Scandinavia, with inventor after inventor rushing to the patent office with their plans for a new device. In 1888 alone, there were 1,903 patents issued, and by the end of the following year, the number had grown to over 21,000. Soon, all types of things were being sold by vending machines. Railroad tickets, chocolates, eggs, chewing gum, cigarettes, coupons, cookies, cough lozenges, matches, and even laxatives were all available from machine. And you know how these things work. It begins with a lone inventor, the small guy, but eventually business takes over. 
1887, the Postcard Automatic Supply Company, who would change its name to the Sweet Meat Automatic Delivery Company Limited, dominated the market. They had control over 1,500 machines that year, with the hopes of doubling it the following year. These machines were really a big hit in France. It was in France that one could buy drinks from a coin-operated drink dispenser. For a small price, one could get two ounces of wine or ten ounces of beer poured mechanically into a glass. This, however, was all happening in Europe. But what about the good old U.S. of A.? Well, they were just a little behind. The first device on this side of the pond didn't happen until 1888. The Adams Gum Company installed vending machines on elevated subway platforms in New York City to sell its tutti-frutti gum. These were highly successful and soon they were popping up everywhere and other companies started doing the same. Coin-operated weighing scales began to pop up so people could keep track of their weight. And America inventors figured out how to add sound to these scales. They had these records that would play the weight of the person standing on the machine. These were crude devices, however, and the sound part never really took off and eventually faded away. It became a race to figure out what products could be sold through one of these machines. Out west, there was a machine that you could use to get divorce papers. It cost either a half dollar or a silver dollar, and you still had to take the papers to a lawyer for witnessing. In the Midwest, the M.B. Mills Manufacturing Company created cigar vending machines. By 1899, there was a new phase in coin-operated devices. A writer for American Machinist wrote, The class of machinery in which you deposit a coin and obtain in return your correct weight, a sight of some model working, hearing a popular air, get a stamped envelope, your photograph, liquid refreshments, kinescope sights and photographic results, etc., etc., has had a remarkable growth. In the early period of its history, the purpose of these makers was blameless enough. But in these later days, the machines have been adapted to cater for those wants of those who enjoy the taking of chances. Yes, the age of coin-operated gambling, slot machines and such, had begun. Early on, people tried to use these machines for drinks, like soda pop, but there was a problem. In those days, you took a communal glass and the machine filled it, but very few people used the tanks of water that were provided to rinse the glass for the next person. Not all that sanitary. And of course, in those early days, there was no refrigeration. Some places would have men fill the machines with ice, but eventually the ice would melt and the beverage would be served at room temperature once again. The problem with the dirty glasses was solved by the Public Cup Vendor Company, who began creating flat-bottom paper cups in 1908. The company would be considered the true founder of the beverage vending machine business. They created a vending machine that, for a price of a penny, would dispense cool drinks of water in individual cups. The Lulin Cup and Water Vendor was a tall, white porcelain device divided into four parts a glass jug of water on top of an icy container, a middle section for wastewater, and a bottom receptacle for discarded cups. The cup dispenser was attached to the front, and since the cups couldn't be returned to the machine, each person would be guaranteed a fresh, clean cup. And it was the perfect time for something like this, as people were beginning to realize that common drink vessels were not a good idea. 
This company would change its name to the Individual Drinking Cup Company and later the Dixie Cup Company. In 1905, the Redco Products Corporation of La Crosse, Wisconsin, introduced a machine that sold single cigarettes for a penny. It was called the Silver Comet. A small plaque on the front of the machine states, Approval of Internal Revenue. I have no idea what that means. You know, the one thing I remember from cigarette machines when I was a kid was, they were a good place to find matches. But of course, the most important coin-operated machine... A big one from my childhood was the pinball machine. I was in that generation that saw pinball get replaced by video games, and it still seems sad to me. Originally, pinball started out as just a toy that were indoor versions of outdoor games such as croquet and golf. In the 18th century, the spring launcher, called the ball launcher, was invented. It was the invention of British inventor Montague Redgrave, who was at the time living in the United States. He was the manufacturer of Bagatelle Tables in Cincinnati, Ohio. Bagatelle was a French game whereby players maneuvered balls past metal pins into holes. One got points as to what hole the ball fell into. You see, there were pins and there was a ball. Get it? Redgrave's spring launcher and innovations in game design are acknowledged as the birth of pinball in its modern form. It was in 1931 that manufacturers were producing coin-operated versions of Bagatelles, now known as marble games or pin games. Ballyhoo was the first coin-operated pinball machine, though they still weren't using the name pinball quite yet. Two years later, these games became electric when a company called Pacific Amusements in Los Angeles, California had a table with electric power solenoids to propel the ball out of a bonus hole into the middle of the playing field. Soon there were things like electronic scoring, tilt to prevent excess nudging of the table, bells, bumpers, and indicator lights. There was also colorful back glass art that increased the appeal of these early machines. All these things made the game a bit more lively. At one time, there were more than 150 companies manufacturing pinball machines, most of them in Chicago, Illinois. Chicago was and still is the center of pinball manufacturing. But because of heavy competition, by 1934, only 14 companies were remaining. The game became very popular during the Great Depression and through World War II. By the time the war was over, these games could be found in bars and malt shops. Still, there was something missing. It was still a game of chance rather than skill. I mean, really, you just pulled a spring launcher and watched the ball fall back. I don't think that's too exciting. In 1947, a game called Humpty Dumpty by an American arcade game corporation called Gottlieb, who was based in Chicago, was introduced. Humpty Dumpty had something brand new. Flippers, six of them, three on each side of the game. These flippers flipped the ball back towards the center of the table rather than back up like in modern games. But finally, there was a way a player could have some control in keeping the ball in play and increasing the score. Now, finally, we have real pinball as we know it. Eventually, the flippers on more modern games would be moved down by the hole, but still, the idea was there. And of course, over the next few years, all sorts of electronic goodies were added to make the game more exciting. And then there was Pong, 
and then the video game explosion, and then pinball slowly faded away. But I think it's time for a pinball comeback. What do you think? Really quick, uh, back to vending machines. There's a lot of vending machines in the United States. But you want to see an explosion of vending machines? Just go to YouTube, put in Japanese vending machines. They've got us beat by a mile. I think you can buy anything in Japan from a vending machine. What do I think of vending machines? Well, you know, they're not good and they're not bad. They just are. Sometimes you come across them at just the right time. A little bit before I go. Today's show might have seemed like a bit of me rambling, and that's because it probably was. I had things in my notes like Moldorama and Pinball and stuff like that, so I just did one last show to clear a few of those things out. I was going to do the creation of the universe, but I think I'll leave that for another day. I still don't have a name for my new podcast. I've gone over a ton of ideas, but nothing really seems right. A couple days ago, I made up my mind. It was going to be called Frames Per Second. I thought, that says it all. Then I found out there was already a podcast on film called Frames Per Second. I thought of things like celluloid nut or celluloid times, because I sort of like the word celluloid. But none of that works either, I don't think. But I've got a couple weeks to come up with a name. Hopefully one will hit me. Once I get settled with my new podcast, I'll release one more show here on this feed, at least one more, to explain where you can find my new show for anybody who wants to tag along, and I hope you all will. And let me ask, if you've got recommendations for films that are strange and unusual that I should watch, please let me know. Just don't, don't give me any Marvel or DC stuff. No, no blockbusters. If you have any ideas for anything, just send me an email at coffeewithjeff, that's all one word, coffeewithjeff, at gmail.com. You know, I started this podcast way back in 2014 just to see if I could do a podcast, and now here I am, seven years later, and, uh, you know, as much as I love doing this, you know, it got to the point where, I don't know, I just wasn't enjoying it as much as I had in the past. It almost got to be a chore coming up with a subject, researching it, and writing it. And when you reach that point, it's time to move on. So before I go, I want to thank everyone who's helped over the years. You know who you are. A few special shout-outs. There's Brecky, who let me join his network all those years ago and probably encouraged me to keep this podcast going. And, and then there's Nancy Fry, who's done a ton of voiceover work for me, and her husband, Gordon Fry, who's helped me with a lot of research and both the fries for filling in those weeks where I just couldn't get a podcast together. Thanks, both of you, and, and of course, thanks to all of you who've supported the show over these years, especially those that have sent me messages on Facebook or through email and gave me suggestions. You don't know how much that meant to me. And uh, Anyway, enough of my blabbing. How about we get to the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you all for listening. 
if you want to say hi or anything at all, I just told you my email address. Feel free to email me. Coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, and I'm going to continue to post on Twitter. I also have a Facebook page called Coffee with Jeff. You can join that as well. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to it at my website. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to this show every week, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure telling you these stories. A special shout out to all of you, every one of you. It's been fun. And uh, take care, remain healthy, and I'll talk again. Bye-bye. Thank you.